So uh, this week I have an article, just a little follow-up on the recycling episode that we did one or two or three or four episodes again. I'm not sure. We don't focus on the past here. That now scientists are trying to convert plastic waste into vanilla flavoring. So as you know, you may or may not know, there is vanilla bean and there is vanillin, which is the cheaper alternative to vanilla bean, which is for... Which is, as far as I know, not in fact made from vanilla. Yeah. Vanillin, which is probably what I use because I go for the cheaper option because I don't have... I'm not a millionaire. (laughs) I don't have vanilla money. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have vanilla bean money. Scientists have figured out a way to convert plastic waste into vanilla flavoring with genetically engineered bacteria. This is going to be vanillin, which is found in actually a wide variety of food, which I didn't know. Cosmetic, pharmaceutical, cleaning, and herbicide products, which makes it better that I use it for vanilla flavoring in cookies. (laughs) (laughs) It's found in so much stuff like that. Apparently, vanillin far exceeds the vanilla bean supply, which I guess makes sense because it's synthetic. And so far, it's made from fossil fuels, which maybe I'm alluding to. I actually didn't know that it was synthetic. Maybe I didn't know it was synthetic. But for some reason, since it tastes so much like vanilla bean, maybe I didn't put it together. But they are saying now that, here's the quote, the global plastic waste crisis is now recognized as one of the most pressing environmental issues facing our planet and about 1 million plastic bottles are sold every minute around the world and only 14% are recycled according to the Guardian and so this is something that they are look at cutting back and recycling putting it towards something else which I guess overall is kind of a good thing like we do need to find a way to Mm. deal with the plastic that we have I don't necessarily trust the idea of saying hey let's make us eat the plastic yeah because we have not done a good enough job researching how plastic or this whatever the byproduct is of this bacteria eating the plastic would interact with the human body which concerns me a little bit but it's not like it would really increase our plastic intake at all it would well i mean how much vanilla do you put in something well how much much how much plastic is in vanilla? We don't actually know. There's it plastic. Could be all plastic. Yeah. <laughs> it could be all plastic. And, and if anybody remembers back to the recycling episode, we ingest about a credit card of plastic every week in North America through our eating, drinking, and inhaling. So we are kind of already at a pandemic level, or sorry, an epidemic of plastic concerns, but mm-hmm. nobody seems to know what it does to the human body, so we haven't really bothered to worry. Yeah, except for, remember there's a thing with not drinking water out of plastic bottles that you leave in your car in the in heat? In hot waters, yeah. Yeah, because, because it causes of the cancer. Yeah. Yeah, and then you can't microwave certain things. And that so, was with babies' bottles, too. Yeah, really? Yeah, That's because, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would think... Like, yeah, it's concerning, but then they put a spin on it. Like, yeah, we're just trying to get rid of the recycling crisis yeah. that's happening, which you'll oh, remember God. from so the far, episodes. Yeah. So far, our answers are, are are lacking, I think is a nice way to put it. Yeah. And the one concern I have is positive stories coming out like this lead people to not change their personal activities when it comes to plastic. And we do. The first 
and biggest thing you can do to fight the plastic crisis is use less plastic. Yeah. I've Hot been, take there. But I've been trying. That's good. Don't let any stories coming out of tech or science yeah, deter you from you. using yeah. less plastic. Yeah, because it might not necessarily be better for you in the end. Well, with that, Chelsea, are you ready to do this for real? Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Okay. <laughs> from the unexplained to the mundane, why don't you come join us on our journey to the fringe? Welcome to Journey to the Fringe, part two, where we do well, the exact same thing that we just did. We um, don't know what's part two. That's true. <laughs> Welcome to Journey to the Fringe, part one. There will be no part two. Okay. This is the only yeah. part. Don't think about it. This is the first one ever recorded. Yeah. <laughs> We're here with our lovely co-host, Craig. He's yeah. a little bear there. He does the recording. Sometimes part he doesn't do his job. Yeah. I am Taylor, co-host to Craig. And to my left mm-hmm. on screen here is Chelsea, also co-host third, to Craig. Third co-host to Craig. 2.5. One. <laughs> right off the top, I do need to give a disclaimer for the topic we are about to talk about. We are going to be talking about recent events in Canada that have happened within the last year and a half. They deal with ongoing litigation, as well as murders, domestic assaults, and arson. So we are going to be as sensitive as we can to the people involved in these cases. However, viewer discretion is advised just because there will be violence involved in this episode. Yeah, we're telling the story. So the RCMP is a Canada-wide policing force. If you live in a small town, that is likely all your interactions with the police will be with the RCMP. However, the RCMP is not the only branch of police in Canada. Most big cities in Canada will have their own police force outside of it, whether it be the Toronto Police Force, the Vancouver Police Department, Edmonton Police Department. They all got their own big ones. But once you get to smaller towns, the only precincts they really have are RCMPs. Yeah. And the RCMP, although held up to such high status in movies and television, and their starched brimmed hats and red jackets are taken by scandal every once in a while. We in fact Mm -hmm. had to study one of them in law school where they were intentionally making people commit crimes to join a fake gang and then arresting them for doing said crimes. It was called the Mr. Big Cases. Yeah. What the crap? Yeah, that was in the early 2000s. Maybe we'll need more episodes on this. We could definitely do a Mr. Big episode, but... Disappointed. What we're going to be talking about right now is what is considered the largest mass shooting in Canadian history. That is right. Canadians can have a penchant for anger as well and take it out on people they know. So this not, is not often to anybody it's not listening. Often, but it can not Canadian. The case in point happened on April 18th to April 19th of 2020. In its wake, it left 23 people dead, 13 counts of arson, three people injured, and a whole lot of questions that I am still looking for an answer for after doing some fairly extensive reading on this matter. Okay. I'm going to give you an overview of what has happened. I'm going to give you a bit of a background, and then I'm going to tell you where I still have questions about what happened here. So without further ado, this is the 2020 mass shooting that took place in Nova Scotia, Canada starting 10 p.m. on April 18th at 2020, when Gabriel Wartman and his common-law spouse, 
and rural beachside community of Portapique, which is 130 kilometers north of Halifax, the capital of Nova Scotia. And sorry, just in case you are not aware of the geography of Canada, Nova Scotia is the easternmost, southeasternmost portion of Canada. It is right above Maine. It is a little bit of an offshoot. And in fact, Nova Scotia means New Scotland, just in case anybody wanted to know that in Scottish. Oh, I know that. Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. At the time, they were celebrating their anniversary, and the couple had returned home after arguing at a nearby party shortly after 10 p.m., whereupon Wartman attacked his spouse and handcuffed her. According to a statement provided by the spouse, Wartman attacked her while she was in bed, fired shots in her direction, and forced her into an unregistered replica police vehicle that he owned, locking her inside of. He then set his house on fire while she was still present. After loading guns and ammunition into the replica police vehicle that he owned, Wartman returned to the party that he was just at with his spouse and opened fire. He killed seven people. Meanwhile, his spouse was able to escape from her bonds, after which she fled into the woods to hide. Beginning at 10.01 p.m., a number of Porta Peak residents called 911 to report gunshots and several fires. Investigative reporting by CBC News examined the timeline of the events and found that the first call came from the wife of a victim, the woman who was then shot and killed while barricading a bedroom door and protecting her two sons. Wartman then attempted to set the house on fire, but the two sons escaped from the home. A third son of the victims said he believed that Wartman targeted his father first during the attacks because he owned rifles and would have been able to stop him. At about 10.05 p.m., Wartman reportedly returned to his burning house, there, he killed a woman living across the street from him who was mistaken him for an RCMP officer responding to the fire. Mm. It should be noted at this point that, and I wish it had explained that better, he is driving a replica police car as well as wearing a RCMP police officer's uniform. Okay. So this woman, seeing him pull up to a fire, thought that this was a safe area to go to and was quickly shot. This woman's children took in the two sons of the first victims that had been shot and house burned down, and together they hid for several hours. At 10.10 p.m., two of Wartman's neighbors drove over to his house to investigate the fire while calling 911, and along the way, they passed by the house of a couple Wartman had shot and killed, where they noticed what appeared to be a police car parked in front of it with its roof lights on. After confirming Wartman's house was on fire, the two drove back and encountered the same police car, fleeing the scene of another house fire. They pulled up alongside the police car only for the driver, who was likely Wartman, to fire at them with a handgun, injuring the driver in the shoulder to manage to flee in their vehicle. Okay, well, I would hope it was him and not just like actual RCMP officers firing at citizens. Now, the police reached the scene of the first fire at 10.26 p.m., and they discovered... 13 victims who had been shot and killed both inside and outside of the eight homes in Orchard Beach Drive and Porta Peak Beach Road. Three of these houses were burning. Police said many had died while trying to escape the flames or to help other victims. Some of the victims were not discovered until many hours later, likely because they were inside burning buildings. Oh my god, why? Like, why do both? Yeah. One officer reported by radio that they had could not locate the shooter and that it's very bad what's going on down here. The Fifth Estate, which is CBC News's journalist here, reported that the first responding officers were overwhelmed and called for assistance. That makes a lot of sense because this is a disturbing scene in a small town. Yeah. First responders also found the neighbors that Wartman shot at. They said he had gone towards the beach, which was a dead end. They also informed the officers that Wartman was impersonating an officer and had a replica police vehicle. 
And remember, this is about 10.30 p.m. They have somebody saying that he's impersonating. Okay. Police officially identified Wartman as a suspect, but with his property on fire and the understanding that there was only one exit to the community, they believed he was either on foot or already dead by suicide could not be far away. At 11.30 p.m., the RCMP officer posted a tweet saying it was dealing with a firearms complaint. That's it. It asked residents of Porta Peak area to stay inside with their doors locked as officers set up a search perimeter of two kilometers. Overnight, there was still confusion over whether Wartman had been apprehended and if he was the driver of the apparent police car. At the time, the RCMP was unable to use a helicopter to assist in the manhunt because their only Atlantic-based helicopter was unavailable due to routine maintenance. That makes sense. I, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's concerning to say the least when they actually need something. Yeah. But overall, there's, I mean, East Coast, most of the population is out there. But when you're looking at a small town over there, there are not very many. Well, especially the Maritimes, that's not where the population is. Yeah. And that's not where you expect something like this to happen, where you would and- need a helicopter. So it's probably like, yeah, just put it in for maintenance for like a while. Yeah. You won't need it. Yeah, Doug's in the drunk tank. We're good. Exactly. But at the same time, that's just one of the coincidences that starts to stack up in this case. Noted. The RCMP later determined that Wartman had left Porta Peak at about 10.45 p.m., 19 minutes after police had first responded, by driving through a dirt road along a blueberry field, which officers did not know about and therefore did not block off. After escaping, he spent the night parked behind a welding shop in the area of Nebert, which is about 26 kilometers east of Porta Peak. There, he left behind police equipment and gun-related items in a ditch on the property of a resident he knew. At some point after the RCMP's emergency response team responded to Porta Peak, before then, residents reported seeing little to no law enforcement presence in the area, despite being seeing fires and making 911 calls to report gunshots. I don't even know what my reaction should yeah. be here because there were multiple calls to 911. Yeah. You've said. And okay. the only people who would be responding in this area is the RCMP. This is just the start. This entire story takes about 13 hours in total, which is a cons- like a very long time. It's a huge amount of time for how many people died. A very long time and for them to not be there. Okay. Mm-hmm. This story takes a bit of a break for a couple hours. By 1 a.m. on April 19th, the RCMP had circulated internal bulletins to police agencies across Nova Scotia. They identify Wartman as a suspect who was armed and dangerous and associated with an old white police car, quote unquote. At 5.43 a.m., Wartman left DeBert and drove north on Highway 4 to a house whose residence he knew located on Hunter Road in Wentworth approximately 37 kilometers north of Porta Peak. He arrived at around 6.30 a.m. and shortly thereafter killed the two occupants and their two dogs. Ortman then remained at the house for about three hours. What he did during this time, nobody knows. At around that time, the police located Wartman's spouse in Porta Peak in the woods. She had fled to a neighbor's home to call 911 since Wartman had smashed her cell phone. She confirmed, and this is again at about 6 a.m., she confirmed Wartman was impersonating a police officer and provided a photo of his replica police vehicle. An APB was purred out containing this updated information to officers across the province at 8 a.m., warning Wartman could be anywhere in Nova Scotia. However, the RCMP publicly announced that they were dealing with an active shooter situation in Porta Peak at 8.02 a.m. Wartman was publicly identified as the suspect at 8.54 a.m. 8.54. Yes. So this is... 
This is 10 hours after it started. Sorry, 11 hours after it started. Wartman eventually set the house he was staying at on fire. And as he left, he killed a neighbor who had been out for a walk when he saw the fire and tried to help. Wartman then began driving back south on Highway 4 towards Portapique at 9.23 a.m. And at 9.35 a.m., he shot and killed another victim while she was walking on the side of the road in Wentworth Valley. At around 9.45 a.m., he went to another house in Glenholm, whose residents he knew, while armed and dressed in police uniform. However, the occupants recognized him and refused to let him in. Wartman attempted to trick them into thinking he was an officer involved in the manhunt by calling out his name and shouting, come out with your hands up. But the occupants called the police and he left. By 9.48 a.m., Wartman was seen near a campground in Glenholm. That happened at 9.35 a.m., that interaction with the neighbors who survived and called the police there has not been a public statement yet that he is in a police vehicle even though i think well they had his his wife said that these neighbors said it and the people who were shot said this the ones in the car before 10 a.m in debert wartman performed two traffic stops on random vehicles a few hundred meters apart and killed their occupants he was oh, then so seen at 10.08 a.m. traveling through to Burt and Onslow. In a tweet posted at 10.17 a.m., the RCMP first warned the public that Wartman was impersonating a police officer and shared the photo of his vehicle. Okay, what time? 10.17 a.m. 12 hours later. This is many hours after they know and that he's impersonating. And this is in a tweet. In a tweet. So I don't know if you follow your local police's Twitter I don't, most, I don't. Do most people have a yeah. Twitter? I don't think so. I don't Hell, know. We're podcasters and we don't have a Twitter. Well, we don't have we a do. Twitter. Press. I tweeted one Twitter. thing. Oh, good. And that might be it forever. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Okay, let's continue on. Wartman okay. was captured on surveillance video passing through Truro at around 10.20 a.m. and then Melbrook First Nations at 10.25 a.m. where he briefly stopped in a parking lot to exchange his jacket for a reflective vest. You can actually see video of this online. It's just kind of eerie with all the background. Just so yeah. because uh, he's no longer in a police vehicle. He took one of the cars he pulled over. Oh, okay. Sometime before 1049 AM, Wartman pulled alongside RCMP constable Chad Morrison's cruiser at the intersection of Route 2 and Route 224 in Shibanakati. I probably am pronouncing that wrong, but it sounds good. So it I'm going to keep doing that. About 50 kilometers from DeBert. Morrison had planned to meet fellow officer Heidi Stevenson at that location. Wartman shot into the car with a handcuff, injuring Morrison, who fled down Route 2 and took shelter at an empty paramedic station, and he was eventually found by paramedics and was transported to a hospital. Wartman proceeded less than 500 meters south into the junction with Route 224 and collided head-on with Stevenson, who was driving north. Stevenson then engaged Wartman, resulting in him returning fire and killing her. Immediately after the engagement, he stole her sidearm remaining ammunition before setting both cars on fire. Wartman then shot and killed a nearby motorist who had stopped to help Stevenson and drove off in the victim's silver Chevrolet Tracker SUV. This guy really likes setting things on fire. Yeah, and... There is no record, really, of him being an arsonist before this. Police announced the vehicle change at 11.06 a.m. Shortly thereafter, Wartman killed a woman he knew at the Shibanakati home. Okay, can I just ask a question here? Yeah. This is police record that he had another change in vehicle. Yes, they announced okay. it. So um, they, they didn't did know that it was okay. stolen yet. Okay. And he changed his clothes again and stole her Mazda 3. And then this, again, is another vehicle change. 
At 11.24 a.m., he is spotted continuing south along Highway 102 through Milford. Now, at 11.26 a.m., Wartman stopped to refuel at the Irving Big Stop service area in Enfield, which is 92 kilometers south of Porter Peak and 40 kilometers north of Halifax. At the time, two RCMP officers were already there to fill up on gas. Having been parked next to his vehicle and unaware he had switched vehicles again, one of them spotted Wartman, who had noticeably bloody wounds on his forehead. When the officers recognized him and alerted his partner, Wartman raised Stevenson's sidearm, whereupon the officers fatally shot him. And at 11.40 a.m., we have confirmation that Wartman was shot to death. And that ends the story, at least how it is officially reported at this time, of the largest mass murder in Canadian history. That's a crazy story. Like, first of all, this guy is super mentally ill for doing all of this stuff. And clearly impersonating, like, I don't understand, like, making, I remember it being so big in the news, him being able to buy parts to make this vehicle look like a police vehicle. And second point, I feel like we're obligated to say here that if you're being pulled over by a police officer or a police officer is at your door, you can call local police station to verify that you're being pulled over by a legitimate police officer yes and i would just like to add to that as well if you are being pulled over by a police vehicle and their sirens are on right behind you and you are in a location that you do not feel safe to be pulled over you put on your hazard lights and you proceed at or below the speed limit to a location that you feel comfortable at continue down that road until you get to that spot and call the local police precinct and inform them of what you're doing and ensure that the vehicle that is following you is in fact a police officer Mm -hmm. that is safer for all parties involved yeah that's just something i it wasn't common knowledge for me before i started listening to true crime stuff i just thought i'd throw it in there yeah, it's it's kind of weird. And there are actually I just saw a case that was ridiculous that was kind of like that a woman who was just trip going along to find a spot where she felt safe pulling over and she had her hazards on. I forget what state it was in. I'd have to look it up. And the cop decided to pull a pit maneuver on her and she rolled her vehicle. What? Yeah, she was pregnant at the time too. Oh, no. Yeah, baby survived. It was over a year ago, but the lawsuit got just started so they released the vehicle wow. uh, the uh dash cam wow that's crazy yeah don't let that deter you listeners yes still do it over safely and verifying that there's an actual police officer yeah. pulling you over so as that story goes it's a wild ride it is tragic but on first glance it does seem fairly straightforward there are some questions that come out about it though first and foremost yeah. i would say is who is Gabriel Wartman, Mr. Wartman here, who did this. And to say he has an interesting past is one way to put it, I guess. At the time of this mass murder, he had a purported net worth of about 2.1 million Canadian. Okay. So he was not exactly hurting for money. He made, for the most part, it seems he made a lot of his money out of owning a denture clinic. He was a denturist. Okay. However, there were a few other things involved, too. In fact, he had a friend. And since we've already done this once, do you remember that lawyer's name? I don't think you said. I think I did on one of... Oh, it's right here. I remember which document I got it from. No, I don't think you said the name. Yeah. But this is the first time we've done this, so... 
Yes. So we've never talked about this before. No. Property and corporate records show that Gabriel Wartman sold two Fredericton rental properties belonging to Tom Evans, who was a friend of Gabriel oh, Wartman. that's the lawyer. Yeah. Okay. For about $300,000 in 2010, after Evans died at the age of 60. Okay. How he did this is he claimed that he had been left all of Evans's possessions in his will. But New Brunswick law does not require that wills be probated, which is you registering the wills at the court so that they can ensure the proper flow of assets. And there is that was sketchy. I mean, in BC, yes, you can't do that. But I don't yeah. know anything about New Brunswick, sorry, Nova Scotia law. I'm just saying, like, generally speaking, would you find that sketchy? There's, it, to me, it's, and this is me not knowing anything about law or really anything to do with this. To me, there's no regulation through that. Yeah. Well, this is really hard because two things about that. In BC, we have mandatory probate for any estate over $50,000. And then we also have a, a no, it's not. And then we also have what's called the Torrens system for our land registration, which is very efficient and not used outside of Western Canada. Okay. So I really cannot comment on what the land title registration system is in Nova Scotia. Yeah. I'm just curious if that's sketchy or not, just because there's yeah, no, it doesn't seem like there's regulation to it. I can't tell you, honestly. He's like, he's just it like, yeah, does, yeah, it was but... left to me in the will when he could have just like stole yeah. it from someone it was left to in the well, will. And he might, for all we know, be showing the right people this will, but he didn't register the will with the courts. Okay. Sorry. So New Brunswick law does not require that wills be probated and there is no will on file in New Brunswick's probate court. So publicly available documents do not show how Wartman came to possess the properties. The man who bought the properties from Wartman and the real estate agent who handled the transaction for Wartman say that Wartman claimed to have inherited the properties from his friend. Well, hearsay, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So that first and foremost, kind of a weird part. He also had apparently a penchant for tricking people out of their land as well, because in 2004, he offered to help a friend who had financial difficulties and was about to lose his house. And then he discreetly took ownership of the house and evicted the man and sold the property. That's a red flag. Yeah. In 2015, Wartman's uncle lent him a house that he purchased in Portapique while selling his Edmonton condominium, and Wartman refused to release the property back to him, claiming he was owed money until the uncle eventually sold it. One of the buyers later became the victim in this killing. I yeah. just have more questions as to why he's like this, really. And why people keep trusting him with their property. Maybe he's not telling them about yeah. the other things that he's tricked people out of. I don't yeah, know. That's true. So he seems to have a weird interact, like run in with property law. And then he also has a criminal record. In 2002, he pleaded guilty to an assault charge and was sentenced to nine months of probation. Uh, he was also prohibited from possessing weapons and ordered to undergo anger management counseling. So he could not get a gun license in Canada. Um, I don't know if he ever got that expunged, but as far as the records show, he never once actually got a license to own weapons, which is very odd for a man who went on a murder spree with a lot of weapons. Well, I guess so, because he couldn't technically have weapons. Yeah. So I think that leads us naturally to the next question. Okay, so how did he get the weapons? That would be the next question, yes. Which... He couldn't have weapons, but had a lot of weapons. Yeah. Which part of it came from his friend, the lawyer. He inherited some from him. 
So Superintendent Darren Campbell of the RCMP said five firearms were recovered from the stolen vehicle Wartman was driving in Enfield. Four of them belonged to Wartman, two semi-automatic handguns, two semi-automatic rifles, one of which was described as a military-style rifle. The fifth was Stevenson's stolen service pistol. Which I just need to ask, how did they know that it was Wartman's when he couldn't legally own a gun? It's a good like question. They wouldn't, be, they wouldn't be registered with him unless, like, and I don't know like, well, if you're an Inheriting them from a will or giving guns to somebody in a will, do they go into their name even though they can't own a gun? Like kind it that's touching way <laughs> too much on estate law that I am not in a position to give you proper legal advice on. Yeah, as nor should you can, I'm gonna nor ask should any of you trust your legal advice from a podcast. Go talk to a proper estate lawyer. Should you have this question? And they will charge email you appropriately for an answer. Yeah. <laughs> Journey to the fringe at gmail.com. God, Jen's not going to like our next meeting. You're going to have so many <laughs> questions. About um, guns. Who can I leave my guns to, Jenny? So, <laughs> and if Gerard dies, can I have his guns? <laughs> yeah. He has none. Okay. But I want to know. So of those guns, he had a mini 14. I'm just going to blow through the weapons a little bit without there's no, I don't want to talk about them. I'm not a huge gun guy. So let's just do that. A mini 14 was the firearm Mortman acquired from his former associates estate, having been imported into Canada and legally purchased in Winnipeg from a gun store beforehand. Canadian gun policy expert said that while a possession and acquisition license was not required for someone to legally possess a mini 14, the executor of an estate is allowed to temporarily own the estate's firearms. Okay, so that just answered the That question. answers it a little bit. I don't know what you can okay. actually do with it, though. Okay, still email us and we'll refer we'll you, you to some. someone. Yeah. <laughs> the other guns definitely were very illegal. The Colt was sourced to a gun store in California and the pistol to a gun store in Mattawamkeg, Maine. Wartman was said to have had acquaintances living in Maine, one confirmed to police that Wartman stole the Glock 23 from him and later said it was for his own protection. While another confirmed he loaned his Ruger P89 to Wartman sometime within the last two to five years. That guy does not keep track of his guns. No, he seems like a psychopath. Like, I, I yeah. not, not, not that you don't know that already from him going on. No, he's mesh. very manipulative in these stories. Yeah. Yeah. And an acquaintance also told police that the Colt was obtained at a gun show in the U.S. by an individual who gave it to a friend of Wartman's who then gave it to Wartman himself. The Colt and both pistols were previously... Oh, sorry. Um, I'm going to leave that part out just because it gets into the government's response to this and we're not going to be touching okay. that. Why? Uh, we don't need to get into politics of that. It just gets messy. Okay. Okay. That, that's just the firearm restrictions and we don't okay. need to talk about that for this. Okay. I think the next logical question we can do from here now is where the hell did he get a police car? Yeah, that would be a question. That's actually not quite the right question. The question is, where did he get four replica RCMP police vehicles? Okay, first of all, I didn't ask the question. Yes, <laughs> you okay. Did. Second of all, we didn't know he had four. He had four. Yeah, he had, he had he had three he, he, had. he had three that got torched with the house and he had a fourth that he drove around in 
Okay, we didn't say this. Did no. he drive around in it every day or was it specifically no. for No, and the-, the RCMP knew he had these and they said you can't drive these around. And it's really weird, but there is no actual crime against assembling. I Sorry, I'm going to get into this. I'll do it now. Yeah, There yeah, is yeah. no crime in Canada against assembling and having a police vehicle. There is a crime for impersonating a police officer. There should be, because you would think they kind of cross lines at that point. Yeah, you would think, but they didn't in this one. And this is just one of those That's weird scenarios crazy. that adds very, on. Yeah, it's very crazy because if you see a marked police car in the street, you're going to think it's a police car, whether it's somebody, a regular yeah. civilian or somebody in a police uniform, you're going to think that that is... That's impersonation right there to me. Yeah. but So it should be illegal. As far as anybody knows, he would keep these vehicles not moving. It is highly suspicious that he had them all like this. But to be fair, Chelsea, you or I can buy a police vehicle. The RCMP in Canada sells decommissioned police vehicles. And this is how he, in fact, bought this. He bought it at an auction on June 27th, 2019. I will get to that. For $10,990, it would be plain white and stripped of its accessories when he purchased it. The documents released Monday show that for months he worked to make it look identical to an RCMP police cruiser. He installed a push bar on the front bumper on August 24th, 2019 and emailed someone to say the car was a bigger job than he expected and it was his first time doing the work. The recipient's name to that email was redacted. It was redacted. Why was um, it redacted? It might be somebody that's not really involved in this. So they're trying to keep their name or there's further investigation going on and they don't want people to know. Okay. It's, it's hard to say why redacted, but I'm going to say it's probably just keeping people who don't okay. need to be involved out of it. Just wondering if it's anything. Yeah. Kept. Oh yeah. That's a good question though. To be fair, there might be no good reason why it's redacted, but I think it's safer to say if they're just keeping the person's name out of it, it's not. Okay. That yeah. 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 Yeah, I get that. Next up, on June 10th, he emailed somebody at a decal company in Maine, and he said, are you fellows able to do a complete decal set for an RCMP Ford Taurus sedan? Question mark. And their reply was... What? No reply was stated. No reply to this email from the Maine company was ever given, as far as I know. I just gotta say, like, I don't want to say that I'd be a snitch on you, <laughs> But if you like texted me and were like, I'm trying to make my car into a police car and it's taking a lot longer than I thought it would, I I would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, Taylor, why, that might why? be illegal? Question mark. Yeah. Well, apparently it's not illegal. I might, for my own record, be like, why? Why you want to make your car into yeah. a police car? Maybe separate yourself a little bit from it. Yeah. Not thumbs up. Like, like, what are you doing? Yeah. And frankly, yeah, you would think like there might be some sort of onus on a decal company when somebody comes and says, can you do a complete decal job for an RCMP vehicle to forward that on to somebody? But I just you would think, don't but know. No, like I would for sure, like it would be like red flags all over the place. But from what you're saying, it's not nothing about this is illegal. I mean, to me, if somebody came to me and said that, I'd be like, 
what like what are you doing and to my knowledge like you would think that it would be illegal to do something like this but it's not so they're not doing anything bad i guess yeah. by not saying something and this is another country but in any case because it's in the u.s and maine but in any case that part doesn't matter because he ends up getting the decals in a small shop in truro which is one of the places he passed through in this spree one of the shop's employees there, Peter Griffin, which I believe is not anything to do with Family Guy. I'm just going to throw no that relation. In there. No relation. He printed the decals for Wartman without his boss's knowledge. Griffin was it's living in... What's that? It's, it's interesting that he went to a place in the United States to print the, those, which probably would have no... I mean, to me, I'm not knowing that yeah. it's not illegal or anything. They would have no... At least attachment to the RCMP, so they might exactly not know who to, to, get to need to report, and yeah. they probably would have more less of a problem to print it than somewhere in Canada. I agree with that. So that's probably why he actually went there first. That's at least just some speculation on our okay. part. Okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And uh, Griffin, who we were just talking about, was living in Portapique on parole in April after serving time for drug offenses linked to organized crime. Okay. The Parole Board of Canada ruled that after initially lying to RCMP about printing the decals, he violated the condition of his release and got sent back to prison. Why? What was he violating? He was on parole after being in jail for drug offenses linked to organized ad- crime. I'm just uh, playing devil's advocate. What was he doing illegally there that is violating his parole? Do you know? He lied to the police, at least in the investigation. Oh, he lied to the police. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And my guess thought, is, is because, yeah, uh, I think it did have to do with the decals. And he said he didn't do it. Okay. That's he at did. least my guess. But like, he's not doing anything illegal by doing it. Right. I don't know. Okay. So we lied. He lied. You can't lie yeah. to the police. You can print decals, but you can't lie to them. There were also a lot of suspicions around him in the lead up here. So residents in Portapique were suspicious that Wartman was stockpiling a lot of gasoline and propane tanks and reported hearing him brag about having lime and muriatic acid to dispose of bodies. What? Yeah, this is just like talk around town that he started stockpiling. He apparently got really freaked out at the COVID kind of triggered something in him. But those are statements that need to be looked into for sure. Yeah. And in um, fact, in 2011, there was a municipal police officer who received a tip that Wartman was wanting to and planning to kill a police officer. And he had a lot of guns and he may also be running those guns. And the warning was sent to all officers in Nova Scotia. And these warnings are only issued on serious matters in Halifax. They conducted an investigation and they looked into all manners except for the guns. Cause they believed those guns were in Portapique and, and the RCMP is in charge of Portapique. So they can't go there. And they inform the RCMP and RCMP has no records of ever receiving this because they shred documentation apparently after two years. <laughs> okay, first of all, that has to be wrong. That is such a short amount of time and that but just we, feels wrong. At work, we don't even shred our stuff. It's like we have a ridiculous amount of files and they have to be like, I don't know, at least five, six, seven years old. Like, they're too, like, we can't shred them yet. We still have to have all those files, and the RCMP has to keep them less time. And aren't they digital? The RCMP is not hurting for money. That's all I know. This is just, what? Yeah. 
What question should I answer next? What's your next question here? It's my next question. I I feel like I still have questions about the decals. Okay, that's all I got on the decals. So we're going to have to move on from that. So the next question, I guess, would be, where did he get his police uniform? And to yeah, that, that was I, my question. Okay, good. Yeah. I don't have a good answer for that. The only thing that I can kind of find a connection to where he might have gotten it is he had two immediate family members who were retired RCMP officers. So either through connection to them or them ordering it for him might have gotten it. But that is all speculation on my part. Nobody can seem to really nail down where it came from. But apparently he really liked to role play as a police officer. And that's all it said in some of the articles is role play. So I don't know how to take that. (laughs) Kind of an awkward thing to just say. If you literally have no knowledge of somebody being mentally ill, which this guy clearly was given. And maybe nobody... Maybe he w- was, what's the word from it? Far enough removed from these connections that nobody saw what he was doing. Like just from oh, what you're saying, separation, yeah. real estate alone, like the guy clearly had some mental illness. But if you're somebody far enough removed from that and you just see somebody that innocently likes to like really likes the RCMP and you have an RCMP connection to get him a uniform... Like, he seems like a manipulative enough person that he might be able to play that, maybe? Yeah, that's fair. Or at least get somebody into a position where he might be able to, like, just, you know, get one or two pieces from people at a time. He seems like he preys on people. Very manipulative, yeah. And then some weirder things have been coming out as of late that really start to raise some eyebrows. So, first and foremost... It seems pretty clear that Gabriel Wartman was also a gun and drug runner across the border. He had no record for it, but in records released by a Nova Scotia judge on or around July 27th of 2020, Gabriel Wartman apparently was a drug dealer involved in running guns and drugs for a main for years, including 10,000 Oxycontin tablets and 15,000 tabs of Delauded. I don't know what that is during one haul. And according to previously redacted portions of search warrants, documents related to the RCMP's investigation into the Nova Scotia mass shooting released July 27th of 2020, Wartman may have used a reservation on the main New Brunswick border to smuggle drugs into Canada. And he... In his criminal record, this is not on there, but it's released by the court. Yeah. The newly released information suggests Wartman was a known drug dealer in Portapique area where he went on a... Sorry, I can skip that part because we already talked about that. Wartman apparently was associated with bikers from the Hells Angels and at least one individual in Portapique area with known ties to a Mexican drug cartel. Oh, The released information also quotes several sources saying that Wartman had secret hiding spots, secret compartments, and false walls in rooms at various properties he owned, including at his denture clinic in Dartmouth, where he stored guns and high-powered rifles. Canada Border Agency has been investigating the source of illegal guns used by Wartman during his rampage. Wartman, whose history of gender violence, and sorry, we can stop there on that one. Okay. So yeah, there is at least... A lot of evidence that he was running drugs and guns across the border. And when you saw that a lot of his guns came from the U.S., that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But that all was missing from his rap sheet that I talked about. 
I was like, I just brought that up and it doesn't, that doesn't what, like, how is it released by the court? Like, is it new information that they're finding? It doesn't necessarily mean like there could have been an investigation involved at that time, but no arrest took place or no warrants were requested, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah, it but makes sense. that has very bad implications for the RCMP. Yeah. As does this last bit of information I want to talk about. On March 30th of 2020, Gabriel Wartman withdrew $475,000 cash. And at the time of his death, they found over $700,000 in one of his cottages. And the odd thing I found about this is, Chelsea, when you need money, you go to the bank, right? I do. Yeah. Okay. I don't really have anywhere else to go. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. But that is not how Gabriel works, Mr. Wartman here. He goes to Brinks. Okay. Brinks, Brinks is a security company. You will see their vehicles all across towns. They're the ones oh, who yeah. deliver cash. Yeah, the yeah. big armored vehicles. Are they delivering cash? I always thought they were like secured vehicles to pick they up do cash. For, they do everything. So they'll transport okay. money to and from ATMs, okay. banks, things like that. Yeah. Not known for letting people come and just pick up cash from them. I wouldn't think of them. And in fact, they don't really do that. In looking at this, a Mountie familiar with techniques used by the force in undercover operations, but not with the details in this particular investigation into the shooting, says Wartman could not have collected his own money from Brinks as a private citizen. There's no way a civilian can just make arrangements like that, he said in an interview. He added that Wartman's transaction is consistent with the Mountie's experience in how the RCMP pays its assets. I've worked with a lot of civilian informant cases over the years, and that's how things go. All the payments are made in cash. To me, the transaction alone proves he has a secret relationship with the force. The force being RCMP. Who's saying this? This person is... This is a Mountie who would not provide a name. And a second Mountie who also would not provide a name, who does not know the first one, but who has also been involved in CI, which I'm going to call them from here on out operations, also okay. believes that Wartman's ability to withdraw a large sum of money from Brinks is an indication that Wartman had a link with the police. That's tradecraft, he said, explaining that by going through CIBC Intria, which is how they did this, CIBC, it's one of the big five banks in Canada. Okay. Big five, yeah. big four, big four. The RCMP could avoid typical banking scrutiny, and as there are no holds placed on the money. That's what we do when we need flash money for a buy. We don't keep stashes of money around the office. When we suddenly need a large sum of money to make a buy or something, that's the route we take. I think with the Brinks transactions, you've proved with that single fact that he had a relationship with the police, he was either a CI or an agent. The RCMP has heard this information and they had adamantly stated he had no relationship with the RCMP. That's a lot to unpack right there. Like a lot, a lot, a lot to unpack. I like have so much to say. If you were to go to a bank, and I know this from dealing with money, that if somebody is even paying in sums over $10,000, you report it. It has to be reported to the, not the government, but... Oh, it's um I'm out of training right now. Yeah, I forget but the name. It starts with an F. So any tr- transactions like that at a bank, you can't even take out ten grand at a time. I don't think. 
No, so he went around and did a very special way of doing it that just so happens to be almost exclusively used. And if, I'm sorry, I did not do any research into anybody else who does this, but it seems to be fairly exclusive to RCMP. Well, who else would if be able to If not RCMP, possibly CSIS, but CSIS is supposed to operate outside of Canada. So I'm going to say Canadian Security Intelligence Services. We have secret intelligence services. Yeah, CSIS. And so that's actually a, that's a spy web that we could talk about at a later date where we have agreements in place with other Commonwealth countries to spy on each other because it's illegal for us to spy on our own. Yeah, it's illegal for us to spy on our own citizens. So we spy on each other's citizens so that we can provide the information to our. Okay, allies. that's an episode. Yeah. I'm just going to put that to the back of my mind right now because it's okay. very unsettling <laughs> information. But you say that. And it makes you connect a lot of things, even with the uniform and the car. The weird coincidences that yes. have been adding up. Which is more than coincidences, I feel like, right now. And we and always think there's no such thing as a coincidence, but you want to believe in your heart that it is a coincidence. Because it's a really awful thing. And, and it, I think it's right important now... Oh, go the ahead. Be trying to take themselves away from it by saying we have no association with this person. Yeah, it's really weird. And to top it all off, just the way this is going to end here, we heard the story of how Wartman met his end at the gas station, at least how the police officers described it. And in the last month, in June of 2021, there have been several leaks from the RCMP, and they're actually fairly upset about them, and they're being very tight-lipped about what's going on in this investigation. The RCMP. Yes. One of those leaks, although not to the public, to reporters, was the video footage at the gas station where the killing of Wartman took place. Okay. How it was described in official reports is that Wartman drew his gun and the police officers fired at him. In the actual video footage itself, Wartman is sitting in his vehicle and reaches over into his passenger seat and is shot. Oh no. The gun was not drawn. Okay. So which doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't a threat. That just means the story is not how it has been told to us fully. No, because they didn't, in the story, they didn't know the car that he was driving. No, exactly. The they only way they recognize him, him is from that brain, that head injury yeah. that he had. Yeah. yeah. But so they still, did know. They, they noticed it was him. Their story is he drew the gun and they had to respond because he was an imminent threat. In okay, the so the actual video footage itself, Wartman is sitting in his vehicle, reaches over to his passenger <laughs> seat, and I can't. Yeah, although is, he might have been an imminent threat, but that is not the story as it was told. No, he isn't. He's definitely yeah. an imminent threat. I mean, there's no arguing about no, that. But the, but no, the question is, is could they have gotten him live? That's the real question. Could they have gotten him into custody? Oh, and they they that. light up his windshield. Once they see him reach over into the passenger seat, they shoot through the windshield, kill him. I wasn't even thinking and about that. I was just thinking that they thought he was a live shooter and they weren't telling the whole story. I no, wasn't thinking about whether or not they would get him live. No, And that's why I find it kind of suspicious is because all this information that we just talked about, I would like some explanation as to why he did that before this. Well, I mean, it's the same as what we're... I mean... 
he's unarmed. He's not doing anything. Now, to be fair, he has killed and wounded yeah. a RCMP officer. Is that uh, protocol? What's that? You look at that, though. Is it protocol? Like, yeah, he's been under suspicion for threatening police officers, but the RCMP didn't really seem to do anything with that information. They didn't I know. seem concerned about it. The other part is, too, that's very strange, is the fact that this all starts at 10 p.m. on April 18th. There is no emergency broadcast throughout to everybody in the area about this thing going on. In fact, they don't even let the public know until 10.17 a.m. the next day in a tweet that there is a suspect that has murdered people in a police vehicle. It is just so bizarre and there's so much going on that I feel like we did not get the whole story. No, well, obviously we didn't. There's way too many coincidences with that brink part added in that just don't add up. I mean, those last two things are like smoking guns. You look at things and you're like, yeah, that's a coincidence. It can be explained away. like Or incompetence too. They can be explained away in incompetence. That last part, I don't, I don't think, think you can. No, I don't think you can explain. Uh, I mean, you can, yeah. But are people really that incompetent? Especially the RCMP? Well, and they're, they are denying this whole part about the money too. So it's, it can't be incompetence if they act, they actually know about this money. That's the hard part. Yeah. And I mean, you get to the point where it starts coming up and they're just flat out denying it. And look at the guy who sold the decals. Like he wasn't actually breaking probation for selling them. He was for lying to the police. police. And now clearly they seem to be lying about some things. And that guy who sold the decals did prison time because he was also a member of organized crime. So like he, he was selling drugs to... as a member of an organized crime. Uh, yeah, he, he might have had some connections to this guy so, anyway. And that's yeah. how we found him. I think I can leave off that's on... crazy. Yeah, it's a ridiculous story. Sorry. We need some answers. By the time you listen to this, there may be more answers out there. We're recording this on June 20th of 2021. There is an ongoing civil action from the families of the victims of this massacre who are suing the RCMP for how they handled it. More information will be coming out due to that. In fact, just this week, I believe it was June 16th or 17th, there was an article on my local newspaper about this exact case and the affidavit interject a little bit here i in the coverage in the media that i heard about this yes it's a huge massacre and it's absolutely awful i mean this is the biggest in canada's history it has to be it is yes in the media i can't say that i've heard the coverage as you've just laid it out to me i mean you've come across it in cbc it wasn't just and it's not that i don't listen to the news i do listen to the news i didn't know about it in as much detail as what you've just laid out here for people listening in the United States. (laughs) I'm not sure if you've heard about it at all. Maybe you have. I mean, it's one of it's the biggest in Canadian history. But it's interesting when you lay it out like this, the most coverage I think I heard about it, yes, the shooting, but then the most coverage that came after it was Trudeau banning several um, different types of weapons of weapons in which I'm not sure if we put it out in this episode for people who aren't familiar with with firearms regulations in Canada, you have to have a care a, a license to even get a gun here and you cannot be you have in- to undergo a test and have a clean criminal record. But it's just interesting the coverage of what got the media attention in that yeah. with the banning of those rifles when it really has nothing to do with it. Cause I mean, he shouldn't have been possession and 
in it in the first place. No, exactly. So keep your eye out for what happens in that civil action. As well, uh, there is a public inquiry going into uh, the response that the RCMPs had. The interim report is set to be released May 1st of 2022 with the final report to be released six months after. We move okay. real slow when it comes to RCMP investigations. So that's so. unfortunate. But you'll hear this before then. There will be new information by the time you hear this. I will leave this off I think with the brightest note I can, uh, apparently they did discover during their investigation that Wartman intended to kill at least five other people and was on his way to do so in Halifax. But these officers did stop five more people for being murdered. Uh, I mean, that's good. That's the best I can do for a happy ending. Yeah, it is? Question mark? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, but this is a weird case. Our police unit, the RCMP, has some questions to answer. And I think in so, the yeah. Coming weeks, months, and years, I hope to see those answers. Are people but gonna be asked? I mean, it's if the same with big corporations. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we probably won't get answers, and it might be something for the people to be asking. No, exactly. And that is if you live in Canada, please write your representative asking to get clarification on these issues in this case because we should be seeing the RCMP being held accountable when Absolutely. they are doing wrongdoing because they have very wide reach. Mm -hmm. And frankly, they have some troubling past outside of this. We will probably touch on it at a later date. Yeah, we should. Just talk to your representatives. Unfortunately, talking inside the RCMP is not going to fix much. They are a fairly bureaucratic bunch and they have their own problems that they won't deal with anyway. So it's going to be hard to get answers that way. In the meantime, you know what? That is this episode. Let's take a break from the depressing and the earth shatteringly real cases These are for good a while. Things to be talking about. But you know what? I'm going to do the Fermi paradox next week. What's that? We will learn about that. We're going to okay. learn about aliens and why we're not seeing them, at least from a physics point of view. Okay. We'll talk to you next week. Bye, this everybody. This is groundbreaking. We just figured out our next episode on, like, right here. On the fly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> on the first time we're recording this episode, by the way. Yes. Okay. We're so good Bye. at this. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>